Good morning, church family. Let's read together. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring to you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amrianna, my 10-year-old daughter, asked me um, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about what it meant to take the name of the Lord in vain. And we were talking about all that that might mean. And she said, she asked me, she said, I've seen a t-shirt where the t-shirt said, God is dope. Is that taking the name of the Lord in vain? I was like, well, that's a good question, Mariana. Um, I'm glad you're thinking about this. And, and what I said is I think that people, you know, would, would wear that t-shirt or you've seen like Jesus is my homeboy or whatever. People would wear those kind of t-shirts or say that in a, in a well-meaning way. I think they're trying to express their love for the Lord. But yeah, maybe that's not the way that we should be talking about the creator of the entire cosmos. Like maybe there, there is more reverence in the way that we, we approach God and say the name of God and talk about the things of God. On the other side of the coin though, we, we started talking about how some people believe that you, you really can't know or relate to God at all. In fact, it's well noted that the 18th century, a lot of the 18th century thinkers, certainly those in, in Western thought were deists, right? And, and it wasn't necessarily because they had a low view of God or believed that God wasn't powerful, but they just believed you couldn't really know God, that you couldn't really be involved with God. I mean, he's God, he's, he's out there, he's so distant, he's so separated from us. So, you know, who, who, how are we to presume that we could like pray to God or know God or have a relationship with God? To them, that, that seemed too callous, it seemed too... Uh, familial, it seemed too uh, low. And I think that, that this kind of question that my little 10-year-old daughter is trying to work through and how do I know God and relate to God and treat God with the right reverence, this kind of question 
is the reason that you and I should be studying the book of Exodus. This is why what we're doing what we're doing here today. This is, this is why you're, you're wise to come here today to engage in this study of a real story of how God himself has revealed himself, how God himself has made himself to be known. In this story, we, we see this. We see who God is. We see how God understands himself to be, what he's like. And we also see, and this is why this is so important, what it really means to have a relationship. The book of Exodus, is, as well as the whole Bible, there are these windows into what God is like, who God is like, and, and what it really means to know him. And, and as you'll see, as with any relationship, there's a lot of layers to this. There's a lot of complexity in having a relationship with God. So let's kind of start with, with what God is like or some, maybe some of God's priorities here. This text, it's one of my favorite passages in the book because it, it displays God's priorities. It, it displays something about the character and the nature of God that, that I don't want you to miss. If you miss this, you miss the whole thing. You, you miss everything, right? If you miss this, we should close up shop because you, you, you've missed the whole point. Look at verse 6. God says to Moses, say to the people of Israel, I want you to notice something here. If you're a note taker, I want you to see if you can find the key word in the passage. God said, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. All right, so I hope you caught the key word, right? It's I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I. I, I am doing all of this, Moses. Don't miss the main point. Don't, don't miss the main character. Don't, don't miss the center of this whole story of everything here. God has created the world to display his glory. He is the theme. Last summer, uh, I got to take a sabbatical and it was amazing and we went on a long family trip uh, and we actually went to Europe and it was an amazing time to go to Europe because they had literally, like Europe had literally just opened. I mean, it was right after COVID and we almost like got there as the door to Europe was opening up. And so it was, it was incredible just because it was not crowded at all and it was an amazing time for our family. And we did not do a lot of the museums because I had a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old at the time. And so we did a lot of other fun things, but... We didn't do kind of the typical museum, but we went to a couple of them because it was just, we kind of couldn't help ourselves because they were kind of empty. Uh, and so the, one of the places you see the picture, we went to the Academia Museum, which is in Florence, and we saw the great statue of David, one of the finest works of art ever, Michelangelo, this amazing thing. Have you ever, have you ever seen it? I mean, it's huge. It's as, it's as tall as this room, and it's just so amazingly done. But it was interesting to look at it through the eyes of my children. You know, a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old at that time, okay? And you know, my nine-year-old, she's a daughter, so she's, you know, a little more with it, I think. But 
she got it. I mean, she got it. You know, she was, she realized like, man, this is amazing. Like I am looking at something incredible here. And you could tell we were, we were there. And again, Europe had just opened up. So we, we basically had the whole museum to ourselves. It was incredible. And she wanted to be there and she enjoyed the moment. She got it. My seven-year-old John Kellis got it less, you know, certainly. But I, even John Kellis, I think he was understanding this is art, this is incredible, this is something. Um, but he got it less. I mean, at, at one point he asked if he could have my phone. And I was like, no, you're not going to play Minecraft while we're looking at the David statue. Just, just try to figure it out, son. Try to, try, to, try to know what's going on. But my five-year-old Rainer, he didn't get it at all. Like, he didn't get it at all. You know, he loves sports. He loves, I had a little football in my bag. And he was like, will you throw the football with me? I was like, no, you're not supposed to do that in this museum, we can't do that. He wanted to go get ice cream. He wanted to get outside. He, he couldn't get out of the room quick enough. He didn't get it. He missed the, the entire point of why we were in the room. I don't know that he ever really understood. He totally missed that this huge statue was right in front of him. And, and I think that's a great illustration. Like you can live your whole life like that. And, and totally miss the statue, totally miss the thing that actually should capture your desire, your devotion, the, the thing that actually should capture your heart, the person that actually is the centerpiece of the entire story, the, the reason for your whole life. God says to Moses here, don't miss it. <laughs> I, I, I I am the main character. I am the point of the story. I am what this is all about. Don't miss it. Now, what's interesting about this is that Moses is doing all of these things. That's, that's what's so interesting is God has said, Moses, you go deliver. I'm going to use you to deliver. I'm going to use you to bring the people out. I'm going to use you to redeem my people. I'm going to use you to free my people from the Egyptians. And it would have been very easy for Moses to begin thinking because he was called and being used by God. No, it's, it's I. <laughs> I'm the great emancipator. I'm the one that the people should be listening to. I'm the one that the people should be paying attention to. But God doesn't ever really let Moses do this. And that's why the, the study of this book is so helpful. It's such a case study for us. God, God always has his ways of, of grabbing Moses, if you will, by the collar and saying, no, it's me. Don't miss it. And we see Moses throughout this story being reoriented, his whole life being reoriented toward the Lord. This is the Christian life. And I just want you to hear this. Joy, <laughs> peace, delight, what you are intended to do, it happens when you're oriented away from yourself, as we said last week. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said that without God, our heart, and here's the word he used. He used the Latin word. I've got it on the screen for you here. It's incurvatus inse. Now, you may not have remember your Latin class, right? But, but I like the word. I, the reason I put that in there in the Latin is I, it's... You're curved in on yourself. You're in curvatus inse. Your, your, your heart is curved in on itself. It was meant to go this way. It was meant to go out. Your, your heart was meant to be directed toward the Lord. Your heart was meant to delight in other things but you, in God's creation, in God's people, in God himself. But the, the, 
what sin has done to our heart is it's, you can almost see it in the word. It's like shriveled it up. It's, it's in curvata sense. It's curved it in on itself. It's broken it. And, and why this is so important, the worshiping church, why we always are pushing things like studying the word of God, being engaged in the mission of God is, is those are the kinds of things where you experience the Lord and he reorients you. He fixes your heart. He turns it away from itself. And he helps us to see, and this is really the first point, God is the center of the story. It's all about him. It's not about you. The, the greatest thing that I could do for you today is not to make you feel a little better about yourself. The greatest thing that I could do for you today is not to give you a little kick of spiritual energy. The greatest thing I could do for you today is not to give you a little practical wisdom. The greatest thing I could do for you today, the greatest thing that could happen to you in this worship service today is that your heart would be turned if only a little bit away from itself and toward the living God. That's the point. <laughs> don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Don't, don't miss what God is up to. I am redeeming Israel. I am creating a people for myself. I am the Lord. So we see in this a little bit about what God is like, that he is the center. He is the theme of all glory because he alone is worthy of all glory. But secondly, and this is why I think this whole study of Exodus is so helpful, it helps us to understand what it is actually like to have a relationship with God. I love this case study of Moses and the people of Israel because it's so instructive. It, it helps us to know what is it really like to be in a relationship with the living God? You know, to the point, the story I told earlier about the deist on one side, God is too distant, or, or you know, the, Jesus is my homeboy people, God's just this kind of friend that I hang out with. Of course you would make up some version of God. Of course you would imagine God in, in some kind of way if God didn't reveal himself. But of course God has revealed himself. And God's actually given us these case studies, these, these, these real human beings, these real interactions with the Lord that we can know and experience. And we learn a lot about that here. The, the first thing that that comes to mind as we, as we consider just God's dealing with Moses and his people is the idea of covenant. The idea of covenant. You've heard me talk a lot about this, but it's a foreign idea to most of us. We live in a world of marketplace love. We live in a world of marketplace relationship. If I do this for you, then you do this for me. If I give this to you, if I produce these goods, if I perform in this way, then you'll perform back to me in this sort of way. But we never see that in the Bible, <laughs> we don't see a marketplace exchange with God. A lot of people view God like that. I'll give, I'll go to church, I'll obey in a certain way, and God, you better bless me. You better protect me. You better take me to heaven someday. I just want to help you if you've thought that way before. Really, and I, and I, I don't mean to disrespect you when I say this word, but how silly is it that any of us could think that we could enter into a marketplace relationship with God. I mean, what, what do you have to offer to God that he would be like, oh yeah, I need that. Therefore, okay, I'll give you this. What do you have to offer to the person who created you? What, what are you even talking about a marketplace relationship with God? How, why, how could we ever think like that? But we, we so often do because it's the, it's the water we swim in. It's the world that we live in. But if we actually, when we actually enter into the scripture, we actually start having a biblical 
understanding of the world, what we see is that God's dealing with people is always covenantal. It's, it's not marketplace, it's covenantal. A marketplace relationship, the relationship is based on the exchange of goods. A covenantal relationship, the relationship is based on the relationship. It's, it's based on the covenant that has been made between the parties in the relationship. I am married to Paige, right? It's not because Paige always does exactly what I want her to do, right? If I hired a contractor for my house and I said, look, I asked my contractor to do these 10 things and he only did five of them and so I'm not going to pay him. You know what y'all would say? Good for you. <laughs> good for you. Don't let him take advantage of you. You know, you'd say good for you. Because why? Because that's a marketplace relationship. But if I said to you, yeah, I gave Paige a list of 10 things to do for me yesterday and she only did five, so I'm going to divorce her. You would be like, wait, what? No, no, no. You, you, you're missing the point, Jason. That's not what marriage is like. Same thing with my children, right? I'm in a covenant relationship with them. All right, it's not because I get all these goods in return for them. No, the relationship, it's a covenant. It's based on the relationship. We have a blood covenant with one another. I am their father. They are my children. And here's the deal about covenant relationship. Here's the deal about a relationship built in love. It's actually when the person is not performing. It's actually when the person is not marketable. Marketplace relationship, you only want to be around the marketable person. You, you only want to be around the person that's performing the most. Covenantal relationship, here's how you know somebody really loves you. It's when you're not performing. It's when you're not marketable. It's when you're the most weak that they're the closest. Are you, if, you're, if you're a parent, you get this. When, when are you most in tune with your children? When are, you, when are you most kind of geared up with them? It's when they're suffering. I mean, the Dees family, COVID hit at a really bad time for where our kids were in school. You know, I had like a, a first grade son in the middle of COVID. A first grade boy does not do virtual learning. I mean, that's just the deal. And so he basically missed a year. I mean, my, my first, I, I basically missed first grade. We missed a whole year of school. And that has an effect. And so you know what that has meant? I haven't said, you know, about my kids that have struggled a little bit here and there. Oh, these kids... They're worthless. I need to get new kids. No. You know what's happened? I've actually loved them more. I've leaned into them more. I've been more attuned with them. I've been more active in their lives. It's when they're doing great. It's when they're super performing that you're kind of like, good. <laughs> they're, they're good. It's, it's when they're struggling. It's when they're suffering. That's when you lean in. That's covenant. It's not marketplace. And I want you to hear this. These are the kinds of relationships that God has with people. <laughs> It's in our weakness that he manifests himself to us. It's when we're struggling, it's when we're not performing, that he comes so close to us and, and displays a part of his glory that, that it, only in that place can we see. I mean, think about this story here. Look at verse 5. I love this. And you see this all throughout the, all throughout the story. This is, this is why you need to be studying these stories. Why does God respond? What is motivating God's action throughout the book of Exodus? Verse 5, moreover, I heard the groaning. I heard the cry of my people. I heard the groaning of my people whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. I'm honoring my covenant with them. I love them. So verse 7, I will take them to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into this good land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am 
the Lord. <laughs> Don't you hear this? If anybody's performing here, if any group of people is performing here, it's the Egyptians. If any group of people is not performing, it's the people of Israel. But it doesn't matter. The relationship is not based on those who are performing. God has made a covenant with these people. He's going to honor this covenant. It's actually in the midst of their great struggle and suffering and pain that God displays things like mercy and kindness and love and forgiveness. So within this context, as the covenant people of God, and, and I just want you to say, and I wanna, I'll say this again, but I want to say to you now, I don't, I, don't what kind, I don't know how you understand the relationship with God that, that you might have, but if you've come in here today with a performance understanding of what it means to know God, let me just go ahead and tell you, that's not how God relates to people. How God relates to people is, is by entering into a covenant with them. And the covenant that God has made with humanity is actually the door to that covenant. The door to that relationship is through Jesus. It's through Jesus. If you look to him, if you believe in him, if you believe that he loves you and that he's come to save you, the, the Bible actually says that you and you and you, even though you may be performing horribly, <laughs> You can be the child of God, the son or the daughter of God. You can be the covenant people of God. As we look to Jesus and as we fear the Lord. So as his covenant people, I want to walk through some practical things. There's a lot of really great case studies in this. And, and the first, I think, kind of key lesson is, is God's purposes in suffering. I mean, the natural question you should ask is, okay, if God loves these people so much, why, do they, why does he even allow them to suffer? Why are they suffering? Why would, why would he allow it? And, and I, I want to say this very clearly. It's, it's actually in our suffering. It's actually in these difficult moments that we learn the Lord, that we learn about his kindness, that we can experience his forgiveness, that we experience his grace. We, we can experience the way that God chiefly reveals himself as the one who saves. It's actually in our suffering that God leads us to true dependence. We, we, we need the suffering to get there. Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. They had no suffering. They, they were in the presence of God. There was no suffering before sin. All suffering is to some degree the, the result of sin. There was no suffering before sin. And, and guess what Adam and Eve did? In that environment, in that place of zero suffering, they forgot about God. They thought the story was about them. They totally abandoned the way of God. And they fell into sin. And the earth has been groaning and suffering and crying out to God ever since. It's, it's in the suffering that we, we really realize who we are and who God is. And we understand how much we need him. And I think I could go around the room, right? When have you cried out to the Lord? When have you groaned? <laughs> when have you really cried out to the Lord? Is it when you're on top? Is it when everything's great? Or is it when you lose your job? Is it when you don't know how to, you're going to make that next bill payment the next month? Is it when you've been diagnosed with something that you never thought you could get? It's when you've been injured, when you've been broken up with, when a friend that you thought you could count on really abandons you. I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, that's when I really cry out to God. That's when I have these incredible moments of clarity. That's when my dependence is highest. And we see something in this story that I want you to, to notice. 
and, and we'll keep bringing this up, but Moses, throughout the story, serves as a type, and I'm using that word type, a kind of, uh, a model for really the whole people of Israel. The same kind of things that the whole group experiences, Moses also experiences. And, and how Moses deals with those things is, we actually see God wanting the people to deal with them in the same way. Moses is a kind of all covenant people. He's a type of all covenant people. We can understand the, all of the covenant people through this kind of one covenant person. And even in this, even in the suffering, Moses suffered. We talked about this last week. He was in Midian. He was in Egypt. He was in the palace. He had everything going for him. But what was God's road? What was his path to where God could really manifest himself to Moses, where he could really experience God? He had to go through Midian. He had to be humbled. He had to be brought low. And in the same way, how would the whole of the covenant people really experience God's glory, really experience God's salvation? It was the fact that they were brought out of slavery. It was the fact that they were oppressed by a strong nation. And then God uh, destroyed that strong nation. It, it was actually through the suffering that God made his glory known. Second kind of case study that we have here and this is so helpful because this is real relationship with God. In, in, if you're going to have a relationship with God, there's going to be moments in time where you suffer, where you struggle. You need to realize like, okay, God is actually doing something. He's showing more of himself to me. He's showing more of himself through me in the midst of this pain and suffering. The second thing though that we learn is the reality of doubt and a broken spirit. Again, Moses is a type here. He's a He's a kind of this, right? Moses has his own little wrestle with doubt. We talked about this a little bit last week. The call that God gives to Moses is enormous. He says, look, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to convince Pharaoh to get rid of all of your slave force, his slave force. You're going to come out here to the middle of nowhere. And all of these millions of people are going to worship me on this mountain. And then I'm going to take you into a promised land, a good land where there's other people living. And I'm going to give you all this land. And, and you get it. Moses is saying, no, <laughs> I, I am not going to be able to do that. And, and again, that's right. He's not going to be able to do it, but the Lord is going to do that through him. But Moses doubts. He pushes back. And I, I love the encounter. We, we didn't read chapter 4, but go back and read chapter 4. I love the encounter with God and, and with Moses. Because even though the Lord, actually it says that, he, that the Lord grew in anger toward Moses, <laughs> but while still angry, he continues to bear with him, right? Again, this feels so real. It's like, oh, I, I can actually relate to God. Again, parents get this. Have you ever been angry at your children but continued to bear with them? That's exactly what God is doing here to Moses. And there's the scene where Moses' staff turns into a serpent. There's a scene where Moses sticks his hand into his cloak and it becomes leprous and then it becomes clean again. And so while God is angry with Moses, here he bears with him, he deals with him, he shows, he continues to show himself to Moses. And, and we see throughout the narrative, Moses' faith that started off very small. I mean, Moses' faith started off incredibly small. We see God actually use Moses to do these incredible things. His faith grows, his courage grows. And what's so interesting is that the people kind of experience the same thing. Look at verse 5 again. 
this was so fascinating to me this week as I, as I kind of saw this. Verse 5, it says, I've heard, this is God. So what is God responding to? He's responding to the groaning of his people. I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians heard or hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Again, what is motivating God's action in the book? And it is his love for his covenant people. He hears their cry. They're crying out to God. They're in pain. They're struggling. They're suffering. They're crying out to God. And so God begins to respond. And he calls this redeemer. And Moses goes to them and he says, God has heard your cry. He is going to rescue you. He's going to bring you out. He's going to take you into this good land. And then look at verse 9. So Moses says all this to the people of Israel. He says, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I love this because it's so, this is so real. This is so it. They're crying out to God because of their harsh slavery, because of the conditions that they're under. And then when God starts to answer their prayer, when God shows up and says, I'm going to redeem you, they can't hear God. They can't believe God because of their harsh conditions in slavery. Isn't this, isn't this the Christian life? Isn't this it? It's, it? The very thing that's leading them to cry out to God is at the same time the very thing that is making their heart heavy and leading them to doubt. And this teaches us a lot about doubt. What it is to doubt the goodness of God. What it is to doubt that the Lord is actually going to do what he says he's going to do. You know, it's so interesting, too, how God responds. He, he doesn't continue to say, well, Moses, go back to him. Go back to him. Moses says, the people don't listen to me. And God basically says, okay, well, go talk to Pharaoh. <laughs> I'm going to show myself over here. And what's interesting, I read through it this week. We, we, we don't hear again from the elders of the people until chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 They've gone through the whole sequence of plagues. God has shown himself in all of these amazing ways. We're going to look at that next week. They've gone through this whole sequence of chapter 12, and they're preparing for the Passover. They're preparing for the final plague. And this is the next time Moses goes to them. This time, they're preparing for the Passover. He gives the instructions. And you know what they say in chapter 12? It says, and they bowed their heads and worshiped God. I love this. Chapter 6, their harsh slavery. They don't have the faith to believe it. Chapter 12, they've seen the manifestation of God. They've started to believe. What's my point in all this? What I'm trying to help you to hear, <laughs> life is long. The Christian life is long. Uh, some of you are young and you've just fallen in love with the Lord and your faith right now, it's full throttle. And, I, and, I, and praise God for that. I, I just want to say, I hope your faith is always full throttle. But more than likely, okay, there will be seasons when your faith is full throttle. <laughs> there will be seasons when your faith is at an eight. <laughs> there will be seasons when your faith is at a three. And you're just kind of holding on. Yeah, John Owen famously said, God's love toward us is like the sun. All the same light. Though it may sometimes be clouded. Right? So God's love is always full. <laughs> God, we don't have to worry about God having a different affection towards us. He loves his people. 
There may be a cloud that covers it sometimes, makes it hard to see. But our love for God is like the moon. Sometimes it's full, but sometimes it's only a thin sliver. And I just want to tell you, the Christian life is long. You're likely going to go through seasons. You're going to go through seasons where it's full. Oh, man, you couldn't be more excited about loving and serving God. But there's going to be seasons where your faith is only like a thin sliver. And I guess my exhortation to you today, it's in those seasons. You know, one of the reasons we always talk to you about these covenant commitments, corporate worship, being in Bible study, being in community group. It's in those seasons that those things actually become all the more important. In, in the seasons of doubt, in the seasons of discouragement, stay in these rhythms of grace. It's not that those things save you. Again, it's not marketplace. It not, it's not that God says, oh, you read your Bible every day this week, now you get to go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. It's the reason those rhythms are so important is not that they're salvific. It's in those moments. It's in those kinds of places. It's in corporate worship. It's in Christian community that usually you have experiences with God, that God shows up, that God manifests, that you actually see what he's up to, that you see his power, that you hear about his love. It's in seasons of doubt when people are often quickest to pull away from those things. But what I'm saying to you is in seasons of doubt is when you need them the most. In a season of doubt, you don't need less Bible, you need more Bible. In a season of doubt, you don't need less worship, you need more worship. In a season of doubt, you don't need less community, you need more community. You need to bring that community into that doubt. And say, I'm struggling to believe these things. Help me, pray for me. And God has his way of leading you back, of restoring faith, of taking you from, I can't hear this because of the hardness of this situation, to bowing your head and worshiping him in love. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about deconstruction, right? Christians deconstructing their faith. And a lot of it, you know, is kind of motivated. People say, well, you know, maybe all Christianity ever was was a political ploy, right? To get people to behave politically in a certain way. Or maybe Christianity is just a means that people can hold on to traditional value structures. Or it's a way of manipulating people, right? And so people, they start to deconstruct these experiences. And if you're not careful, you can just deconstruct all the way to where people become a cynic about everything. And the only thing they trust is themselves, which I'll go ahead and tell you is oftentimes the worst thing to trust. But the only thing they can trust is themselves and they become a cynic of everything. I want to tell you that there, there is a level of deconstruction that we all have to go through, Right? But a true Christian, somebody that really loves God, it's always matched with reconstruction, right? There's, there's always deconstruction you have to go through because no form of Christianity is perfect, right? Some people say, well, you know, I, I realize that this Sunday school teacher that really discipled me wasn't perfect. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> you should have known that already. <laughs> no form of Christianity is perfect. It's, it's all flawed because it's mixed with fallen people, in my life, I've had to do this so many times and say, okay, what if, this, what if this is right? What if this is biblical? What if this actually lines up with God, what God has revealed? And what if this wasn't right? It wasn't that they were trying to mislead me or try to do something bad. It just was, it was motivated by something that wasn't true to the Lord. It's, it's deconstruction and then it's reconstruction. And, and as I've gone through that in my life, every time my faith comes back stronger and better and fuller, and I hope with more compassion and more mercy and more grace. You're going to have to go through that in your life. If you want to run this race for a long time, 
if you want to still be running hard when you're 70 and 80, you're going to have to go through that. And, and, and what I would say is this, just don't, don't give up on the rhythms. It, it's in those seasons when you need community. It's in those seasons when you need to be in the Word. It's in those seasons when you need to be serving and giving. It's in those seasons, and, and here this is a warning too, when Satan will tempt you towards sin, and you will feel in a season of doubt or discouragement or dealing with some past pain an incredible license to sin. And that brings me to the third point here. Is God's dealing. So we've looked at God's pursuit in suffering, God's purpose in suffering rather, God's pursuit in doubt. But the third little case study here is God's dealing with unholiness. This is very important. We didn't look at the text. So again, I'm trying to kind of cover the whole book here. We just looked at six, but chapter four, I wish we could have spent a week in four. But there's this really bizarre moment in four. And I want to talk about it because I think it so applies to, to Moses' development as this redeemer. Let me read it to you. It's 424 through 26. It says, so, so let me just set it up. So Moses has been talking with God at the burning bush. He's doubting, but now he's going. He's, he's finally going to obey the Lord. Actually, he says the Lord had been angry with him, but he's finally going to obey. He's heading toward Egypt. So he's, he's obeying. He's moving in the right direction. And we have this weird scene in the Bible. Here's 424. It says, at a lodging on the way, so he's going to Egypt, the Lord met him. So the Lord shows up and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, what does this mean? <laughs> right? What a weird passage of scripture. If you've read Exodus 4 before and you've read that, you said, what's going on there? God had given Abraham when they made the covenant. This covenant, this idea of covenant, this sign. There's a sign of the covenant. It's very important. Circumcision. And every Hebrew boy was circumcised as a way of setting them apart. They were a set-apart people. They were God's covenant people. Moses, of course, remember, if you remember, he stayed with his mother for three months before the whole scene with the, the reeds and the, the little raft on the reeds. So he would have been circumcised. He would have gone through this as a sign. He was a descendant of Abraham. But, of course, he flees. He goes to Midian. He marries Zipporah. She's a foreign woman. And uh, I could just see the scene. Now, we have to kind of imagine the back scene here, but I can imagine it, right? He says, hey, uh, I, we haven't talked about this, but among my people, when babies are born on the eighth day of their life, we, you know, we circumcise them. We cut the foreskin of, you know, we circumcise them. And so... And uh, I can imagine Zipporah saying, no, <laughs> not my baby. Like, you're not going to do that to my child. And I can imagine that it was a contentious point, right, for them. Again, I'm imagining that. I don't exactly know that. But that's how I imagine the backs were to be. So now here's Moses. He's going to obey God. He, he's going out to go and try to obey the Lord, to be this great redeemer of this people, yet he, he still has this thing in his own life that he's never really dealt with. He hasn't really obeyed God with this that he knew to be true. 
The point I'm trying to make here is this. If you're in Christ, if you're called to be the covenant people of God, it's a call to obey God, to trust God. And the whole of the Christian life is this cycle of repentance and faith. All the time as I worship God, as I move closer to God, God is revealing sin in my life. I have to repent of that sin. I have to trust in Christ and trust in the cross that I can be made new and whole and right. That's, that's the posture of the Christian life. So, so it's not that we're ever over sin completely, but it's when we face sin, we don't harden our heart against it. We repent. We trust in Christ. That's the cycle of the Christian life. And, and that's how the Lord really uses us. When we pursue him like that, when we, we have this posture of repentance and faith and repentance and faith and repentance and faith, but it's easy in the Christian life. It's easy in any life with the Lord. To have a spot in your heart that you won't really turn over the Lord. It, it's, it's, a, it's an area of your heart that you've hardened your heart against the Lord and you're not really dealing with. And, and, and so I, I feel like I'm speaking to some people here today. The Lord really wants to use you. The Lord is calling you. You, you, you. You've had an experience with the Lord. You know that the Lord is setting you in a direction. But there's a piece of your heart that you're not repenting of. There's, there's, a, there's a hidden sin in your life that you have not confessed to the Lord, that you're not dealing with. It's just there. And you've hardened your heart against the Lord. And, and, and what I'm saying is, what this story illustrates is the Lord takes these things very seriously. Lord thinks he's very seriously. And so let today be the day of repentance to you. That the Lord does not just, the Lord is not callous toward unholiness. The Lord is not callous toward sin. He, he forgives of our sin. But he, but he requires, he calls his people into holiness. If you've hardened your heart against the Lord, he cannot use you. <laughs> if you've hardened your heart against the Lord, he... He won't use you. There will be a consequence for that. Deal with these things. Let, let, let this moment right here be the night in the lodging where you finally deal with it. You say, I'm going I'm I'm to get this right. It's a wild story, but it, it, teaches us what, it teaches us what a relationship with God is actually like. Moses is such a great type. <laughs> he goes through these things that all of his people go through. He goes through suffering, and his people have to go through suffering. He has to fight for his faith. He has to fight through doubt, and so do his people. He has to endure God's punishment, and so, so do his people. He's a redeemer for them, but he's a redeemer that can empathize with the people of Israel in every way. And I want you to hear this as we close. The Lord is still calling a people unto himself to be his people, to be his covenant people through whom he will display his glory. And even right now, God is calling you to himself. And the Lord, in, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a redeemer that can't sympathize with us. No, he, he's, a, he's a redeemer that can sympathize and empathize with you in every way. Are you suffering today? Have you come in here heavy hearted? You know who suffered more greatly than anyone has ever suffered? <laughs> you know who endured pain like no one has ever endured Jesus, the Lord, he, he meets you there. Have you called out to God and felt like he is not listening? Where is he? You know who's called out to God and got no answer? Jesus in the garden. Please let this cup pass on the cross. My God, 
Why have you forsaken me? No answer. Have you gone through punishment for sin? You've endured pain because there's some sin in your life that you're not dealing with. You know, Jesus endured punishment for sin too, only it wasn't his sin. It was our sin. And, and through that punishment and through that mercy and because of his compassion toward us, he's calling us to be his people, to be the covenant people of God. And so here, I want you to hear this. When he calls you, when he speaks to you, don't harden your hearts. When the Lord asks you to deal with this issue of your life and to trust him with it and to follow him, don't harden your hearts. When the Lord brings conviction on you for some sin in your life, don't harden your hearts. God's calling you to be his covenant people that he's going to use to display his glory. That's the point of the whole thing. Don't you see? This is it. Don't harden your hearts. Listen to his voice. Let's pray. Father, make our hearts soft today. Help us to be the kind of people that, that don't miss it. Help us to be the kind of people that realize that it's all about you, Lord. You are the one doing all these things. It's your glory. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us not to miss it. Speak to us now, Lord. Father, by the power of your spirit and in the kindness of your grace, Lord, speak now. Help us to listen. And I just want to give you a moment as you're quiet before the Lord. Just to allow him to speak into your life. To examine your heart. Some of you, you're here today and you're in the midst of great pain. You're crying out to the Lord. I, I hope that you see today that God has purpose in our pain, purpose in our suffering. It's through that that he actually can display his grace and kindness. I pray that in that your faith would be strengthened. Some of you are here today and you are in great doubt. Don't, don't give up on the rhythms of grace. Keep seeking after the Lord. Let him show himself to you. Some of you are here today and there is, there's unconfessed sin in your life. You know it. The Lord's convicting you even now. Repent of that. Get help with that. Talk to somebody. The Lord cannot use you if your heart is hard toward him. So Father, by your word, through these truths. I pray you would shape and build your church for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' glory's sake, Lord, that through Jesus, your Son, Father, that your glory may be known wide and full. I pray all these things. You do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.